Hi, it's Richard, and we are on hiatus for the holidays. We're out enjoying the outdoors with our loved ones, having great meals, and actually probably planning our 2024 adventures we're going to do together. This means we've dipped into the archives for two incredible podcasts. These are Around the World Journeys, one by bike, one on foot. One's from 2021 and one's from 2022. So I hope you enjoy them, and we'll be back in January with some incredible new guests. Today on the 10 Adventures podcast, we're talking with Linda Bilek, who uh, just wrote a book about her two-year adventure cycling around the world. Uh, with me is Karen. Karen, I understand you were in the middle of reading the book. I just finished the book. Does it make you want to get out on the bike again? You're just back from your own bike trip. Oh, yeah, for sure. And some places um, you've described, Linda, sound especially exciting and uh, interesting from a cycle touring point of view. So really interested to hear what you have to say about these places. And so obviously Linda's here. Linda, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm excited. I just read the book. I sent you an email uh, when I finished it, just how how much I enjoyed the book. I couldn't put it down. Uh, my first question, what led you to uh, have this desire to cycle around the world? So yeah, first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. Glad you uh, enjoyed the book. So that's good to hear. And uh, yeah, what led me to want to do that? I think it's um, like, I've always liked traveling, always liked cycling, camping, those sort of things. And I've just always kind of felt like I wanted to do a big, go on a big adventure, do a big trip, travel to lots of countries and whatever, take some time out. Hadn't really made any concrete plans or anything but then at some point I um yeah met my now ex-partner Tim um when I lived in Manchester at some point he told me about his idea to uh cycle to New Zealand I think the the idea was at the time because he'd read a book by someone doing a similar trip he wanted to do something like that as well after he'd finished his PhD and I was like okay that sounds really cool and yeah, I think for a while it was like, yeah, maybe I'll come along for a month or two or something. But then gradually over the course of our relationship, it just merged into let's just do this together because it sounds amazing. And I, I'd i love to do it as well. It just, yeah, some people when they hear something like that, it's like, oh, that sounds crazy. I could never do anything like that. And at one point I felt like that as well. When I first heard about someone doing a like multi-continent uh, bike trip, but over the years, I'd heard a few more things of people doing stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, I'm game. Let's let's do it. So sounded like a good thing. And then leading into that, like, were you doing a lot of bike touring beforehand? Or is this, you know, one of your first big trips? Yeah, that was the first big trip. There were a few just like weekend things, just like four or five days at the most um, that we did, like in the year or so leading up to the trip, just to kind of get a bit used to it and also just get an idea of if it's something that we'd actually enjoy or if it's just something that sounds good but once you're actually doing it it's like oh no it's not for me did a few of those and other than that I was just like commuting to work and cycling around town but hadn't done any like big trips for of more than a week or anything um before the trip I'm fascinated with how do you even plan for such a big trip? I, I've done a number of bike tours myself, and I, I see lots of people on social media that are doing big round-the-world trips that look just amazing. But I was wondering how you actually plan for a trip like that. And, and in particular, how do you go about choosing routes? Or is that something you're doing day-to-day? 
it's kind of a an in-between thing. Like, I think you just have to find a good balance of um, planning the right amount in advance and then leaving some stuff like, yeah, for short notice sort of decisions. We like read a lot of books and blogs um, in the last year or so leading up to the trip and to decide on on routes and my partner's original idea was to cycle to New Zealand so it was going to be going east pretty much and um, we looked at what kind of countries were on the way what the visa situations were for for each country and things like that and made kind of a rough plan which way we'd want to go but of course we didn't plan like exactly we're gonna take this road and whatever so just okay this country this country and um, then as you get closer to the time and yeah on the trip then like just a few days in advance or so you might look at the exact roads or a bit or a couple of weeks in advance or so to also know what the road qualities are like and things like that and you just kind of have to find the right point for each decision like visas of course have to be sorted out a bit further in advance and things like that but yeah we tried to not plan too many details in advance and still leave the element of adventure and spontaneity and yeah just decide lots of things on the go as well one aspect of adventure uh, i found really interesting was how much you know random or wild camping you were doing and it really contributed to a you know a tremendously small budget can you maybe talk about what it's like you know wild camping around the world and how that impacted your budget that definitely made it pretty cheap as well as like um, cooking mostly. So yeah, we had a little camping stove with us. So we tried to mostly buy food from supermarkets and cook, um, except like in, in cheaper countries, we'd stay at guest houses and uh, eat out at restaurants as well. It always varied a bit, but especially in expensive countries, we tried to uh, wild camp as much as possible. So that seemed pretty doable in most countries. So you just kind of get into a good a habit of finding the right kind of secluded places um, and in most countries even if someone discovers you they're not really going to care if you're not like leaving a mess or destroying anything if you're just gonna be in some field for a night or some abandoned building then nobody really cares are there any tips if, if someone's thinking of doing a trip like this and they're like oh i want a wild camp i want to do this on the cheap what are some of your, you know, biggest tips for finding a good site after spending two years doing this? It's hard to say. I think you kind of have to find your bearings a bit in each country that you get to and suss off the kind of places that are good. So some countries have a lot of abandoned buildings and then it's good to sleep in those. And in yeah, in others it'll just be kind of woods, forests. So just um yeah, go a bit off the road, find somewhere where you're not visible from the road. You might also if you want to have lights on in the tent after dark, then yeah, you need to find a slightly better place maybe if you don't want to be discovered because otherwise the tent's obviously going to be very visible. And then in some countries, it might be better to um, ask people if you can stay on their land. Like um, some countries just don't have that much free secluded spaces um, that nobody owns or whatever. And then it might be a safer route to go up to people and ask them if you can camp on their land. But I think, yeah, in general, it's just something you kind of develop on the go. You just start seeing the right kind of little paths that might lead to a good place where you can camp. Sometimes it's a bit hit and miss, so you just have to try. And sometimes you also look for somewhere for an hour and a half or so, and you don't really find anywhere good, but you just keep trying and then you 
get much of it. You also used warm showers and uh, did, I think you used couch surfing as well. Um, I've never heard of warm showers. Do you want to maybe describe why you chose to use that and then, you know, what it is as well? Couch surfing and warm showers, both kind of hospitality networks. Um, couch surfing is open to any sort of travelers, um, although after the end of the trip, um, become like a paid for system now, which it wasn't at the time. Um, and warm showers is specifically um, geared towards cycle tourists. People on this platform have a profile that they use to either host people that are traveling by bike or to stay with other people when they're traveling by bike. People can, uh, they put their address or their rough area in and uh, some contact information. And um, then you can, yeah, say that either you've got a spare room or you've got some space in your garden where people can camp and you can say that you provide meals for them or you don't, like you don't have to and um, give a bit of info about yourself. And then, yeah, you can, when you're on the road, you can contact those people and say, oh, hey, I'll be in your town in three days time, roughly. Um, could I stay at your place? Could I camp in your garden or stay in your uh, spare room or whatever? And then if that person's free and wants to host you, then they'll say yes. And you go and stay for free with that person, which is like a great system, obviously, to meet the locals and exchange stories because most of those people will have done cycle trips themselves and have a lot of stories to tell um, of their own. So yeah, it's a, it's a really cool thing. It seemed just reading your book that there was lots of these kind of incredible experiences that you wouldn't get if you just, you know, rocked up and stayed in a hostel or a hotel. You actually got to understand the culture and the people more and and almost it came through in a lot of countries. That was the highlight where these relationships you were building. Yeah, exactly. It's just perfect for that to not just be with other tourists in a hostel or whatever, but to actually stay with people who live in that place who can tell you stories about what it's like living there and just these kind of connections are just what it what makes the trip really rich or one of the aspects and uh that was always always a great experience to stay with people and often we were also invited by people spontaneously that like yeah we didn't meet through couch surfing or warm showers but just they saw us on the street and would invite us into their homes and these kind of experiences are really great so I want to talk a little bit about, you know, kind of talk through your route because I found it, you know, really interesting reading it. There's a lot of places I prized how much you loved them and other places I was surprised that maybe that maybe they weren't as great. So why don't we start, you know, you're in Manchester, you're taking off and kind of your, you know, your first destination is going to Europe and going down the uh, uh, ICT, the Iron Curtain Trail. Why did you choose that route? And, and you know, what what is, what is that route? So, um, yeah, the ICT wasn't the, like, first Eurovelo route we did. So in Europe, yeah, there's lots of uh, different cycle routes uh, called the Eurovelo routes. Uh, the first one we did from my hometown, uh, Magdeburg, uh, down to Prague was uh, the Elba cycle route. Um, so we followed that. That's a very popular one. So lots of other cyclists there, um, lots of people just like doing day trips or whatever. And, uh, yeah, that was nice. And then a little later from... Um, Hungary uh, to Bulgaria, we uh, did the ICT, which is one of the newest Eurovelo routes. Um, and yeah, so ICT is the Iron Curtain Trail. So it goes along where the Iron Curtain used to divide Europe. And uh, it partly it just fit in our route well, the way we wanted to go. We were like, oh yeah, there's there's that one. We could, we could take that. And it 
seemed interesting to kind of go along the border of of countries and feel like you're going down uh, history a bit and uh, seeing all of this uh, old uh, memories from uh, from Soviet times in some countries and whatever. And uh, we followed that for about 1,000 kilometers, I think. So the total route is um, about 10,000 of the ICT. Uh, so we only did a fairly small bit of it, but that was really nice. And yeah, so we were um, in uh, yeah Serbia uh, and Romania and then part of uh, Bulgaria. The route was really nice, um, nice paths, nice landscape, lovely people. And uh, the, the signs were nice as well. So they often had like little quotes on them that were just kind of encouraging and whatever. So it was a nice route. We really enjoyed it. It sounds like that route was quite well maintained or, um, from what you're saying now, because I know some of the Eurovela routes, they aren't that well marked or they're not an obvious route in some countries. So that Iron Curtain route was well maintained and marked. Yeah, definitely. I think sometimes maybe that it seemed like one or two of the signs were missing, but as it was such a new one, it seemed like it hadn't, like maybe not all of the signs had been put up yet, but the surface was mostly really good. And I can't really compare it to others so much because I haven't done so many of them. Just did, yeah, part of the Elba one and part of the Danube one as well. They were both um, good quality and good signposts as well. And so was the SET, but don't know about other ones really and then where where were you when you finished the ict we worked in bulgaria and then we decided we uh, wanted to go down to greece uh, to the coast because yeah we just thought that would be a nice way to go along the coast sounded nice wasn't so much in the end but um that's why we left the ict because uh, that was gonna go further along the border and we just wanted to go to greece so once you left the ICT, were you still following Eurovela routes or were you more uh, choosing routes on your own? So by that point, we uh, yeah didn't follow any more ICT, uh, any more Eurovela routes and just uh, made the route ourselves, which we didn't have so much experience in at the time, I guess, yet. So um, that didn't always work out so well. Some of the roads we those weren't proper roads, but were more like gravel paths. And um, yeah, in the end, <laughs> we probably should have looked into routes a bit better. Um, but still, it worked worked out fine, and we learned more about better how to find better routes later on. I think. Yeah, I must say that's one of the things that intimidates me about doing a big um, trip like that because I find when you're not following an established route. You spend a lot of time planning which roads and which way you're going to get from A to B. Yeah, true. Sometimes that was a large uh, part of our yeah planning that always needed to be done every few days or whatever. And uh, that could be stressful, but then it can also be really rewarding. And when you do find some really nice routes that weren't like a set route that someone had planned before, but you just made a route and it worked out really well, then yeah, that's really great as well. And then you feel like you scored. So after Greece, did you then head towards Turkey? Yeah, we did, exactly. Yeah. So we entered Turkey from Eastern Greece and uh, then we were in Turkey for about a month. Yeah. And from your description, it sounded like Turkey was a real highlight, at least up until that point. 
And I have heard uh, hospitality in Turkey is really great. So tell us a bit about what it was like um, cycling through Turkey and which route you chose. Turkey was like the the country where it felt like the trip properly started because Europe was great as well, but it was still our home continent and everything still felt sort of familiar. The culture isn't really that different even in like Eastern Europe compared to home and it's all, you always feel pretty safe, you know everything kind of, you've always got mobile internet when you're in the EU and have an EU SIM card so everything was sort of easy and then in Turkey it felt like okay now the adventure's properly starting, different culture and we didn't have mobile internet, we like in later countries we'd always buy a local SIM card but at the time we were like yeah we'll manage without, we will just find Wi-Fi and we'll be okay so yeah, we didn't have mobile internet for a month and always were on the hunt for Wi-Fi, which led to some good, but also some stressful situations. As soon as we arrived in Turkey, it's like, yeah, mosques that you see, hear the call to prayer five times a day. A lot, most people don't speak uh, much English and uh, like we had Google Translate like you can download languages for offline use so we had that for turkish which was good but yeah so you can't have a proper conversation and it all makes it all makes it more difficult of course um but yeah right away people were so welcoming so hospitable um that yeah not a day went by when we didn't get invited for tea at some tea house um by the side of the road and we got invited to stay with people so much and give them food and everything. And yeah, people were just so overwhelmingly welcoming and it really was an incredible experience. So we stayed with some people through all showers and couch surfing, but also with lots of people who, yeah, spontaneously invited us. And those people were definitely one of the highlights of Turkey and then also the the landscapes were really great as well. We went to uh, Cappadocia, which is kind of in the middle, which was also part of the reason why we didn't go along the coast as many people do. Just heard from lot of pe- lots of people that um, the roads along the coast are quite challenging. Can't exactly remember what it was now, probably like traffic and road quality, and maybe there were also lots of tunnels. I'm not sure anymore. But then we also heard from lots of people, Cappadocia is amazing, you have to see it. So yeah, we decided to go inland and uh, it was really cool to see, really amazing landscapes, like these rock formations. Um, and then yeah, every morning you've got lots of um, hot air balloons rising into the sky and it's just uh, an amazing thing to see. So that was also a highlight. The fact that we stayed in Turkey for a whole month was also what made us feel like we really got to know the country because all the prior countries in Europe, we were only in each country for a few days at a time because all the countries are so small. So you travel through really quickly and then you feel like you've got a bit of a connection to one country and you're already in, in the next one again. But Turkey, we were there for a whole month. So we felt like we properly got to know it. We learned the language a bit. Like We didn't speak Turkish, but we had a decent vocabulary. So yeah, we felt really connected to it and it really has a special place in our hearts, I think. And how about like um, traffic on the roads in Turkey? Because I have heard people say that, um, you know, it can be pretty busy and scary, but I never got that sense when I was reading your book that you felt like that was an issue. 
Yeah, not really. Like, uh, it was crazy in Istanbul. That is definitely true. So getting into Istanbul was very scary and, uh, yeah, quite an experience. Um, but after that, it was mostly fine. Like, we took some um, motorway, kind of highway roads and... Uh, they weren't super busy. The drivers were fine. And yeah, usually they had a wide hard shoulder and uh, it was fine to cycle on that. So um, mostly we didn't have a problem with, with traffic in Turkey. Most drive, like a lot of drivers would um, honk and wave at us in a, in a friendly way. And so yeah, didn't really, apart from Istanbul, didn't really have any problems. That sounds good. I was also wondering, you know, you get to Turkey and all of a sudden people are inviting you to go for tea with them or inviting you to stay at their place. And I was wondering how that, how you guys felt right at the, when that first started ha happening, because it turns out that you said that was one of the highlights of your experience there. But I was wondering, like, was there reticence at the beginning to be going and staying in someone's house, you know, who just invited you off the street? Yeah, maybe a little bit, but like, I think we were a little bit prepared for it from reading other people's books and blogs and things like that, because that kind of stuff seems to happen to everyone that travels by bike. And um, maybe not so much in Europe, but or like, yeah, Western countries, but I think in a lot of countries that seems to always happen sooner or later. And when it happened to us the first time in Serbia that we were invited into someone's home um just like yeah we were at a pub in the afternoon just having a beer and looking at the map to find somewhere to camp soon and some guy came over to us and spoke a little bit of english and was like you sleep my house tonight like okay <laughs> um and yeah it was a bit weird at first and we're like is this like really happening are we misreading the situation because of course it's english wasn't perfect and okay no I think yeah he actually wants wants us to stay at his place and we spend a bit evening together and he insisted we sleep in his bed and he sleep on the couch and things like that um so yeah at first you're a bit hesitant and also worrying a little bit like maybe someone's trying to rob us or are we just being too gullible but then I think we just told ourselves no the the world isn't like that most people are good and we've heard from lots of other people that these things like pretty much always work out like it's i've not heard from anyone who was in, invited in by someone who was cycle touring and uh, then was robbed so i'm sure that has happened once or twice but um it's not something you hear about generally so we just told ourselves it'll be fine and it always was and yeah once you kind of have that trust in people it just uh, allows for those experiences it's a hopeful message isn't it <laughs> to to hear that you know that you had all these opportunities that turned out to be incredible and nothing bad happened it sounds wonderful. so after turkey then you were heading into central asia is that right so yeah, Georgia, Azerbaijan, and then we took a ferry across the Caspian Sea and um, then yeah, Central Asia. And what were you expecting from that part of the trip and how did it pan out? So I think that part I was a little bit scared of. So I knew there was going to be desert first and yeah, I hadn't cycled through a desert before. Um, so I was a little bit worried about how that was going to work out, how 
I was going to deal with it. And then um, later on, it was going to be the mountains in Tajikistan, which um, I was also scared of because there were we were going to go up to pretty high altitudes and there were going to be bad roads and everything and being in really remote areas. Um, but yeah, in the, in the end, all of it was amazing. And I, so the deserts, um, I found out that I really liked cycling through the desert. I think, yeah, I can't remember who it was, but someone said there's not just like um, mountain and ocean people, there's also desert people. And I think maybe that's what I am a little bit. So I also love mountains and oceans, but deserts are just something special to me somehow. I feel like there's a certain magic to them. I don't know. So like, yeah, I probably wouldn't want to live in one, but like traveling through one for a few weeks or so is just something that I found out I really enjoyed when I yeah, did it there in Central Asia and then again in um, Australia and in the US. This kind of uh, freedom, sense of freedom that you get and you just can be, it's kind of meditative, I guess, in a way. You're just cycling along for a few hours and you can listen to music or just think or yeah, listen to podcasts or whatever. And uh, then, yeah, it's just a, a simple life, I guess. And you just find somewhere to camp in the evening and the stars are amazing and you just have to plan your day according to where's places where I can get food and water. And um, as long as you figure out a good way to do that, it's a, it's a nice thing to do for a few weeks. The mountains in Tajikistan were also really nice, um, amazing views, uh, really incredible. And uh, it was also very tough at times with the altitude and the bad roads. Um, I really struggled at times. I think my, my partner was a bit um, like enjoyed it a bit more because he's a bit more I think into type two fun so the kind of fun where you only enjoy it later looking back at it that you've managed it and not at the time and there were some days when I was like oh yeah didn't quite want to quit but probably as close to it as I as I came but I mean Linda was it Tajikistan where you kind of had the two options an easier route and a tougher route and you guys chose the tougher route. I was trying to visualize that in my in my mind. Like, are there four by fours that are going regularly on that route? Or is it just basically, it was snowy, you know, when you were up high, but like how developed was that area? Was there, you know, regular car traffic or were you guys kind of just on your own? The easier route would have had regular traffic all the way. And then the tougher one that we took, um, that still had some like four by four traffic up to a certain point. But then um, at some point, uh, so it was like along a river valley. And then once we climbed out of that river valley, um, that path or sort of road that we took, that wasn't um, one that cars could drive on anymore. So for the last few days, we were just kind of by ourselves on a really steep gravelly path. And that was really hard work. Um, what made you choose that route? I'm I'm ready to chose the easier one myself. <laughs> <laughs> I think if I'd been by myself, I would have also chosen the easier one. But yeah, we it took us a while to decide going back and forth because just what we what we read and heard from people, they said, Yeah, it's tough, but it's worth it and the views are just so amazing. Um yeah, just the mountains, the you can see the Hindu Kush in, in the distance and uh just like along this river valley, really dramatic views. 
I knew that my partner was leaning towards taking the harder one. I was leaning towards taking the easier one, but I kind of, I was worried as well that we were going to take the easier one. And then maybe I'd think like, maybe we should have taken the harder one. Maybe now we've missed out on some, something. So in the end, I just said, yeah, okay, let's go for it. And uh, it was beautiful. So it's hard to say whether it was worth it for me because like it was amazing and I wouldn't, wouldn't want to miss those views but it was also very tough at times and being in isolated conditions on your own with a lot not a lot of other people around were there any scary moments that the two of you had um i don't think during that time when yeah which was probably the most isolated we were that like yeah maybe for two or three days we i'm not sure if we saw anyone um I don't think anything that scary happened then. So it was just kind of battling with yourself and with it being physically hard. But I think we had enough food and there were like little mountain rivers that we could drink from and things like that. So I wasn't scared as such that we were going to die or anything. It was more just mentally getting through it. And I think other times we we were never really that isolated where we couldn't have asked anyone for help for days or something like that. I do remember reading though in part of your trip, maybe not that area per se, but that you were carrying 16 liters of water between the two of you because there wasn't a water source close by. I thought, oh, that sounds kind of tough on top of all the rest of your gear. Yeah, I think that was uh, in Australia and part of uh, the outback. And we still, there would have still been cars that we could have stopped to ask for water. And some people would do that as well. They carry a bit less and then they just flag down a car and ask if they can have a bit of water, which is fair enough as well. But we just wanted to see if we can make it just like by sustaining ourselves and carrying enough water. And yeah, there was one stretch where there was no roadhouses in between, nowhere to get water for um, a day and a half or two days or something. So we had to carry a lot of it. And at the time in Australia, we were uh, on a tandem as well. So yeah, we decided to do something different for a while and um, kept our bikes boxed up after a flight and sent them to Sydney from Darwin. And then, yeah, we bought a used tandem and rode a tandem through Australia. The tandem was a bit like um, a camel, I guess, with so much stuff on it and all the water as well. (laughs) But yeah, we managed somehow. So before uh, Australia, you guys uh, went into China and uh, I felt your route there really interesting in terms of the diversity of what you saw. Um, how did you choose? You know, China's massive. How did you choose where to go uh, with, with so many options? Well, ideally, we would have wanted to just cycle the whole way, not take any other form of transport. Ideally, we would have entered from the West and then just cycled to some other country within our visa time. But that in the end wasn't really possible because the visa that we got was um, a double entry 60 day visa. So um, we each had 60 days to stay in China, then had to leave and go to another country and then we could come back for another 60 days. And 60 days wasn't really enough time to cycle through China into any other country, at least not at that time of the year, because we couldn't, couldn't go to Mongolia, for example. And then, yeah, we couldn't go like down to Tibet and whatever, because uh, can't go to Tibet really anyway. And then, yeah, there's 
the Himalayas in the way and things like that. So um, in the end, we figured out, okay, we can't get to another country without either um, cycling a bit, then taking transport out of the country and going back into China or getting some transport to skip part of China and then cycle the rest to get to another country. So we decided on that in the end and got a train um, across the Taklamakan Desert in the West. Um, and then from there, we um, thought, okay, in 60 days, or just under 60 days by that point, we have enough time to cycle down to either Laos or Vietnam. There's lots of areas that we didn't see because of that. We didn't go to the east of China at all, and there's, there would be loads more to see, but we did see a very diverse range of um, landscapes of China and just yeah different provinces that were all uh, all had their own kind of characteristics and things and then how did china you know the cultural shift just you know the country shift or coming from central asia was it a massive change for you or or was there some fam familiarity from other places you'd been on your trip yeah it probably was the the biggest uh, cultural shift that we experienced um when we first entered china not so much because that western part of china um xinjiang province is like historically part of central asia and that's also where some of um the problems that have been in the news in the last few years have come from so the the uyghurs and those kind of issues um so traditionally they don't really see themselves as part of china um, so it still feels like Central Asia around there, the facial features and the kind of food and things like that. So around there, the shift wasn't so big, but then we got the train, 24 hour long train or something, can't remember right now. We were in a, in a very different area of China where everything just felt different. So the food was different. The food was very good in Central Asia. It was sometimes a bit bland and suddenly it was like, ooh, spices, amazing. The communication with people was suddenly a lot harder. Like we hadn't spoken the language of the recent countries either, like a little bit of Russian, but hadn't properly spoken it. But usually it was still possible to work out some form of communication, but with a lot of Chinese people who probably had never met a foreigner and didn't really have a concept for someone doesn't speak my language. So that was sometimes pretty difficult to... Um, find a way to communicate and yeah lots of other things were were different as well it's uh just felt like a whole different world world and took a while to get used to but we we did really enjoy it in the end one thing i was i was laughing about during your book was how you know people would come up and they'd start speaking to you in i think it was mandarin and you, you know we don't speak english and they start writing it down it reminded me and you're like we can't read it. it reminded me of my parents you know they just say the same thing in english only louder when when they're abroad uh, obviously it, what you said is that there's, there's so many different dialects that actually it is quite common that people can read the actual the words but they just can't understand it because the accents or the dialects are so strong yeah exactly because the only frame of reference um people have that have never met a foreigner is um oh yeah there's i've met this person once that was from a different part of the country and i couldn't understand them but then once i wrote it down they could read it and then they could understand it so that's what i'm gonna try and that's what they tried with us but of course if we don't just speak a different dialect but don't speak Mandarin at all and don't read uh, Chinese characters either, then that's not going to work. <laughs> and then what was cycle touring like in China uh, in terms of 
Uh, I'm assuming the roads got a lot lot better than they were in Central Asia. Uh, but was traffic an issue, or or was it still you know comfortable to to ride through uh, through your route? It varied quite a bit. Um, some of the roads um, obviously were really good, and we had been looking forward to that as well for the last like few weeks in Tajikistan. Like, oh, soon we'll be in China, and there'll be great roads. Um, but then a lot of smaller roads that we took varied quite a lot in um, in quality. So there were some dirt roads and muddy roads or roads that were just under construction, but seemed like that construction had maybe been going on for a long time. When we were on highway roads or whatever, it, they were good quality and big, wide, sh- uh, hard shoulder and things like that. So that was usually pretty comfortable, but of course, mostly not the most uh, scenic route. Uh, but sometimes it was just good to make progress um, using those. And uh, then on smaller roads, the traffic was quite bad sometimes. So usually there wouldn't be a hard shoulder and more traffic than on the on the tall roads. Um, so that was sometimes a bit scary. Usually people gave us a fair bit of clearance when overtaking, but it also seemed like people going the opposite way were giving cars that they were overtaking so much clearance that they nearly crashed into us and things like that. So it, it could be scary sometimes, but yeah, we had all, all sorts of surfaces in China, really good ones and really bad ones. And then for, for this leg of China, where did you start and where did you cross into Laos? Um, so we uh, crossed into Vietnam in the end. Couldn't decide at first, but in the end we thought, okay, what we'll do is go into Vietnam for two weeks because, uh, yeah, as a as an EU citizen, you get um, 15 days visa-free. Um, so we thought, okay, northern Vietnam sounds nice. Uh, we'd heard some good things about that. And then um, we'll go back into China, do a loop around um, yeah, Guangxi uh, province, and uh, then go back into Vietnam and see more of Vietnam. Just from where we entered China, kind of went straight south, uh, or where we took the train to, I mean, and um, crossed it to Vietnam. We talked to uh, a couple of guys who cycled the length of Vietnam from Hanoi down to Saigon, and it sounded like a great place to cycle tour in. Did you have that experience as well? Yeah, we really liked it as well. Um, we, yeah, didn't go down to um, to Ho Chi Minh City, just did the very north and then kind of the bottom of the northern third of the country or so, I guess. Um, so around Hanoi and um, Halong Bay and that. And it was a it was a nice country. The traffic was sometimes a bit hectic. Um, so when we crossed into Laos after, that was definitely a lot more relaxed. It wasn't a bad uh, country to cycle tour in. And also the, the route down, um, down the length of the country uh, might be a bit more relaxed as well. And so then in Laos, it sounded from your book like you had a really great time when you had got into Laos. At first, yeah, when we first crossed into Laos, as I said, it was it just felt a bit more relaxed. There was less, less traffic and um, somehow this whole, it's part of this Lao lifestyle as well. This, uh, yeah, there's this Bopan Yang, which means uh, like it doesn't matter or no big deal or whatever. And you can kind of feel that in how people live their life. They all just seem really laid back and uh, we felt that as well. 
And then also what was um, great about Laos, which wasn't a specific thing about Laos, but just um, coincidence is that we were cycling with another couple uh, there. So we met up with um, two people that we'd been in touch with through Reddit and Instagram. And uh, yeah, they'd been in similar areas to us for a while. And finally, it happened that our routes kind of aligned. So we met up with them and cycled together for a few days. And that was really nice as well, because of course, we'd for a long time had mostly just had each other. And then, of course, you've got all the people that you meet that you stay with, but they're always very limited um, connections that you have. You meet someone for one or two days and then you say goodbye again. And often you've got a bit of a language barrier as well. So um, this couple from England, it was just really great to spend an extended period period with them and get to know each other. It must be nice to meet up with other cycle tours who've been doing the same thing as you for months, just because it, it seems like you'd have such unique experiences that it would be like just so nice to be able to share those experiences with people who'd understand. Yeah, exactly. And there's so many things you can connect through and you're like, oh yeah, did you make that experience as well? Oh yeah, we did. And yeah, just compare stories and often you've found some found out some similar things and other things where you went different routes to tell each other about it and like, ah, oh, yeah, we should go there as well. And yeah, it's so nice to to talk to people who are making those exact same experiences as well. I could imagine there'd be a lot of laughing too as you each describe all the crazy things that had happened to you. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> So as you went down through Southeast Asia, you know, it, it seemed like this really nice experience where you kind of had, you know, the sea and just warm places to sleep and you're not cold all the time. Are there any memories that stick out of when I talk about Southeast Asia, what like what comes back to your mind? What, what's your enduring image of that part of your trip? One country that we, um, I mean, we pretty much enjoyed all of Southeast Asia, but one that stuck out a bit more was Thailand. Everything just seemed perfect there. It was, we called our blog post from the time in uh, Thailand, Peddling in Paradise as well. Um, Cause yeah, it just felt like a holiday from the holiday. It was perfect roads, even small roads that were completely quiet were perfect surface. Um, people were amazingly friendly. The food was super good and cheap, obviously. Lots of uh, yeah, people on warm showers and couch surfing, but camping was great as well, beaches and everything. So we always said afterwards, like we wouldn't want the whole trip to be like that because it would get a bit boring, I think, and you want some challenges as well. At the time, it was uh, it just felt like oh, this is this is really nice, and you couldn't really can't really think of anything that's not perfect about it. And we also um, one warm showers host we stayed with there. Um, who wasn't actually there at the time. So he was a Frenchman who um, ran a, um, a guest house in Thailand and was on warm showers. And uh, he, I think, was in, in France or something at the time. But he was like, oh, yeah, my uh, my employee is there and he'll um, let you know where where you can sleep. And we, I think we camped in the garden, but the house also had a pool. Uh, we could use the kitchen and everything. And it was just this really luxurious place. And we also happened to um, meet two friends there again um, that we'd first met in Turkey. So two also Frenchmen who were cycling on a tandem. 
and uh, we'd stayed in touch with them and we'd taken different routes after Turkey even. We thought maybe we'll never see each other again, but then they had gone to um, they'd gone to India and then I think to Singapore and then cycled north from there. And yeah, we were just going south. So we met at this warm showers place and uh, yeah, that was, was a great reunion. And so again, so many stories to tell and everything that's happened in the meantime. That just um, was, a, was a really nice experience. And so you continued down through Indonesia and then you went to Australia. I, I loved reading that part of your book, but for people that have never cycled Australia, you basically went from the north to the south. You know, what, what can they expect? I guess a lot of nothing <laughs> while cycling through the desert. Sometimes you don't see so much for a while. You just see kind of vastness and just the occasional road train, so big long truck overtaking you, birds of prey in the sky and the occasional roadhouse or rest area and whatever. Going through the outback back there wasn't so much in terms of um, sightseeing, I guess. We went to this one area um, called the Devil's Marbles, where there's yeah, these round boulders that are kind of interestingly stacked up and that was really cool to see and it's just like some quirky towns on the way and things like that but it was more just the experience of um, being in the desert being out in this vast landscape and whatever and um, kind of challenging ourselves because like cycling through the outback sounds like something crazy in the end it's it's quite doable again if you're just organized and you get your water at the roadhouses and your food and whatever um, then it's it's perfectly doable, but it was especially after Indonesia as well, um, which was quite full on. Often it was it was great, and we really enjoyed it. But sometimes the attention that we got was um, borderline too much because we just um, we were treated like celebrities everywhere we went. Everyone always wanted to take pictures with us, and or like took sneaky pictures of us when we weren't looking. And uh, so whenever we sat down somewhere to eat our lunch, we'd have a group of children surrounding us. And so after that, going to the desert was definitely a nice thing, and especially like being back in a in a Western country as well, where we don't attract so much attention because we're white people, and most people there are white. Especially after that, it was it was a nice uh, change as well. It seemed to me you were Australia exceeded your expectations, and is is that a fair statement? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so. And was that because you had low expectations, or Australia was just just that good? Because I guess from my point of view, I think oh, it's going to be okay cycling across Australia, but I wouldn't expect a ton. Is that what you ha- had, or were you expecting it to be good? It just was incredible. No, I think that's kind of what it was like for me as well. Um, like I think there's a lot of people whose dream it is to go to Australia and I was never really one of those people. I thought like, oh yeah, maybe if I'll get the chance to at some point I'll go, but it's not this urge I have. Like I really want to see Australia. Um, But it was just kind of on the way (laughs) because we wanted to go to New Zealand. So we were like, well, we might as well go to Australia then as we're in the area. And um, so I didn't expect so much, but in the end it just, it's got, Everything it's got deserts and it got it's got tropical areas, beaches, and it's just got a bit of everything in terms of landscape. And uh, yeah, the people we met were amazing as well. So open and kind, and uh, it's hard to to describe really. But just we, I think we connected with a lot of the people and just felt very friendly very quickly. 
And of course, we, yeah, I mean, the people all over the world were one of the highlights, um, especially in Australia, of course, one of the first countries in a while where we could like properly communicate with people without a language barrier. So that helped as well. I think it, so it was a mix of like Australia just being really cool and there being so much to see, um, as well as me not having high expectations. And then because of that, I really enjoyed it. And then going across to New Zealand, what were your expectations for New Zealand? Pretty high, I guess. So yeah, always heard that New Zealand is just so beautiful and um, seen lots of pictures as well and everything. So we um, thought it was going to be <laughs> going to be very nice and it was very beautiful but we also kind of thought that cycling would be nice there because it's like a, a western country generally they put some money into cycling infrastructure you think and uh, we heard that there's yeah all these cycle trails as well so we thought okay cool uh, and landed and like at the airport there was a bike assembly station so we're like okay that's a that's a good sign they're definitely like cycling is a big thing here but we were a bit disappointed with that in the end because um, a lot of those cycle trails, they're more for mountain bikes, so quite gravelly and not so good for our tire widths. And then also often they had these metal gates to stop motorbikes from going through. But when you've got panniers on your bike, your bike's pretty wide, so you also can't get through. So you have to either like take the panniers off or kind of put your bike on the back wheel and try to somehow maneuver it through. So those kind of things were quite frustrating and then when you're on the road quite often there's no hard shoulder the drivers were pretty bad i have to say unfortunately so quite a lot of very close overtaking um and then on top of that there's the weather as well so it's quite windy and rains a lot and everything so it was just a lot of circumstances that all made it in terms of the cycling, not as enjoyable as we'd expected it to be. It was still a great country to visit and again, stayed with lots of amazing people and um, had a good time. And overall, everything was like more good than bad. But in terms of cycle touring, it wasn't the best country. So I'd probably, if I went again, I wouldn't go by bike. Maybe I would take a bike with me so you could do like some of those little like day trips on one of those trails. Um, ideally with a mountain bike or something and without luggage. But yeah, I think for getting around, I wouldn't want to do that by bike again necessarily. I was super fascinated by your riding through Mexico because I haven't you know, heard of a lot of people doing that. Obviously, there are people that do it. Uh, so you guys flew to Los Angeles. You chose to go through Mexico. You know, what were your thoughts? Because in the news and, you know, you hear all these uh, stories about, you know, the violence in Mexico. You know, was that a big decision for you or was that a pretty easy decision? Yeah, it was a fairly big decision because, uh, of course, that's something we took into consideration. We didn't just want to say, oh, yeah, let's go and it'll be fine. We definitely wanted to do our research, read people's blog posts, spoke to people who'd cycle through Mexico as well to get an idea of whether it's actually doable or if it would be too dangerous. And generally, the consensus seemed to be that if you avoid some areas, you should be fine. Like, of course, there's all, you could be unlucky, but the likelihood of you being um, in the, the crossfire of some cartel act activity or whatever wouldn't be very high. We thought that we, we wanted to 
somehow get from the west coast of America to the east coast and that would be like the end of our route because then we'd have basically gone around the world. Um, so yeah, we thought either we could just um, stay in the US but then it wouldn't have been maybe the most interesting last couple of months of the trip just um, being in like I think Texas alone would have been a month or something. Uh, we couldn't really go far north because it was the wrong time of the year. It was like January. Um, so we would have had to stick south and thought, yeah, are we going to just stay in the US the whole way? Or maybe like, yeah, if we do our research and if we see if it's doable to go through Mexico, then let's do that. Um, so yeah, and also my best friend was living in Mexico at the time. So he and his wife were going to live there for two years um, originally. In the end, they also had to move back sooner because of COVID. When when we first left for the trip, I said to him like, oh, maybe we'll visit you guys in Mexico once you've moved there. But it was kind of joking. But then as we were now in, in the US anyway, or like gonna go to the US, we thought, hmm, okay, we could still go to Mexico and that'd be pretty nice visiting him there as well. So um, that was kind of thinking. And then it, it seemed like, you know, your experience in Mexico was great food and charming towns. Is that what it was for you? Just like, it seemed like a really special place to go, go bike touring. Yeah, it was really fun. Um, again, some of it was just like um, desert, so not so much to see. But then the towns and cities that we went to were, yeah, really charming, really nice. Um, went to some old like colonial towns that uh, were very pretty and the food was amazing. I was a little bit worried as a vegetarian how easy it was going to be, but it was super easy to find vegetarian food and uh, we really enjoyed it. And it was a, a really good uh, last country to um, to go to for the trip. And you say last country, because I believe uh, the pandemic was starting at that point when you were in, or is that correct? Yeah, that's right, yeah. But even before the pandemic started, Mexico was going to be the last country. When we first left for the trip, we didn't really know how far we wanted to go. We thought if we can make it to New Zealand, that'd be cool. Um, and then we'll see. And then at some point before New Zealand, we thought, okay, we're almost in New Zealand now. What are we doing? Are we stopping there? Or are we carrying on? And then we thought, okay, well, to go all the way around. It would only be another two or three months if we went across um, America. Um, so let's do that. And But yeah, we didn't want to do loads and loads more months because at that point it already felt like we don't want it to end just yet, but we don't want like another year and a half or something. So about three months more sounded about right um, where we were like in Australia, New Zealand as we decided we didn't want the US to be the last country, but it would be nice to finish on a country that's like, yeah, got a bit of a different culture than Western, uh, like English speaking countries, whatever. Um, we thought, yeah, Mexico will be a nice country as, as the finale. But with these thousands of kilometers on your bikes, I was wondering about bike maintenance. Like, were you doing a lot of maintenance on your own or was it a matter of finding a bike shop every so often? Um, yeah, a mix of both. So most maintenance we'd do ourselves, but do ourselves, but um, some parts, of course, we'd have to buy from bike shops and then, yeah, some things are a bit difficult maybe to um, replace yourself. 
So um, generally, I think we just kept track of how long, for example, we'd been running our chains for. And then maybe if you come up to 4,000 kilometers or something, you're like, okay, should probably look into changing it again. So then you just uh, yeah, plan to go to the next bike shop in the next big city that you get to and buy a new chain there and stuff like that. We generally change ourselves. Um, then there was also bigger stuff like... Um, so on the transport, probably from um, Australia to New Zealand, uh, my partner's uh, fork got cracked. So it was a carbon fork and um, yeah, that got damaged. So then in New Zealand, he had to buy a new fork. So then he bought a steel one that he found from a bike shop there. Things like that, of course, um, a bike shop has to install most smaller things that we could do ourselves, we do ourselves. I guess you're just praying that none of the big things happen when you're in a really remote area then, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We were lucky with that one that we noticed it pretty soon after the flight. We were just sat down next to the bikes and uh, my partner looked up and was like, oh God, there's a big crack there. Um, so yeah, that could have been a lot worse if we'd been somewhere not in a city as we were right then. And other things that we happened, we also always managed to at least like MacGyver something together until we'd get to the next city where we could get a proper fixing. I thought one of the, you know, really poignant parts of the book was the evolution of your relationship with Tim. And, you know, just want to describe what it was like to, you know, go on a trip with your partner and just have the relationship change. When we left for the trip, we'd been together about three and a half years, I think. And we'd been talking about going on the trip for a while I guess and uh, yeah we were both really excited we'd always kind of had some problems in our relationships but were trying to work through them or partly trying to ignore them I guess and then when we first uh, left for the trip everything was like yeah really exciting and I think the first few months our relationship was great as well because there was just all of that adventure so much happening every day and it was just great and we there were no like problems with with us or anything but then once the I guess novelty wore off a bit, bit again those problems that we'd always had um, kind of became more apparent again and I think over time we just both kind of realized that maybe this is in the long term going to work out as a relationship but it wasn't, it just kind of fizzled out, I guess, just the the romantic feelings just gradually left. And we didn't talk about it for a while because I think we both didn't really, we weren't really sure what was happening and what was going to happen with the trip if we were going to talk about this and whatever. And then at some point, finally, um, on our uh, fifth year, five year anniversary, actually, um, was, I guess, as good an opportunity to talk about it finally as any. But yeah, um, we just talked about it and felt like, oh, yeah, we realized that we both felt like we were, we'd been more friends than a couple in the, in the last months and that we didn't really have those big romantic feelings for each other anymore, but that was kind of fine. Like we were still friends and we still worked well as a, as travel companions and we still both wanted to continue with the trip because we both felt like oh, it, it'd be why would we end it now if like we're still if everything's basically good between us except we're not going to be a couple anymore so that's what we kind of decided we 
just became friends and kept traveling together for the last few months and that worked out really well and yeah not much changed other than the fact that we could just be more open with each other about those things and not like pretending that we're gonna try and like find somewhere to live again together after because neither of us really want was sure where exactly we'd want to live and now at least we we didn't have to pretend that we both have to agree with where we'd want to go or whatever yeah i just think it's incredible to to have that frank discussion and then to go on with the trip and act like how you kind of think oh this is how everyone should act i'm not gonna talk about the final chapter because i thought it you know really powerful but it's just you know you reflect on this whole on this whole trip just reading about it was a really powerful read you know when you think back i just cycled around the world for two years what does it make you feel i think it's really hard to um summarize it partly i'm just really proud partly i still can't really wrap my head around it i think sometimes i'm like if i tell someone about it i feel like i'm i'm kind of bragging and when i think about it without those kind of insecurities i'm just super happy that i got to do this and got to see so many amazing parts of the world meet so many people and just do this this amazing thing for two years have the the freedom to have the savings and whatever to do it and do it with someone that was a great companion to do it with and it's just something i'll i'll never forget and i'm i'm happy i wrote this book about it as well for myself because I can always look back at back at it and um, read it again if I feel like I'm getting I'm forgetting some stuff that happened and it's just something that'll stay with me for the rest of my life and then speaking of the book it really is you know one of those travel books where you can't put it down it has you know you're not bogged down in details with you know you spend a thousand pages on you know two days uh, I think I read it in five days and just like as soon as the kids went to bed I, I picked it up. Uh, the book's called Pedaling the Planet, Stories from Two Years in the Saddle. Uh, if it's cold and you had a you know a rainy or snowy weekend, go onto Amazon and and download the Kindle version or order it because it really is a, a fun read. Uh, I'm going to put a link to uh, the Amazon book in the show notes. Uh, also a link to Linda's uh, website where there's lots of blog posts, which are really, really interesting. Uh, Linda, thank you for being on the podcast today. Uh, thanks for writing the book because, you know, it's hard to find books that are just, you know, you can travel vicariously by reading, but that's definitely what, what your book was. And it was great hearing some of the stories today on the podcast. Yeah, hey, really great to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the 10 Adventures podcast. If you liked it, why not give us a review? Better yet, subscribe and get inspired again and again. Also, if you want to find your own adventures, why not check out 10adventures.com where you can use our free resources to plan your own trip or book a tour in over 60 countries and make your own epic memories on your next adventure. Adventure.